0: It's a marvelous thing to be healthy. It's a highly desired reality for most of us, if not all of us. We want to be healthy. I personally desperately want health. I was born unhealthy, as it were. Um, most of you have heard some measure of this story, but I'll repeat some of it. I was born with my insides on the outside of my body. Shortly after, surgeons put me back together As a newborn, I developed an infection so that they had to go back inside my infant tummy and remove a portion of my intestines. I lived the first four months of my life in Children's Hospital in Dallas, Texas. Once I was finally released, a life of consistent pain began. After almost every meal, I would experience terrible stomach cramps. Because of the loss of part of my intestines, my body refused to... Absorb nutrients, so my immune system remained weak. So I would catch whatever was going around every year throughout the year, all the time throughout my childhood, not to mention the fact that I've spent most of my life allergic to pretty much everything green in this world. Nevertheless, God has been gracious to me to provide some measure of physical health, and I say that I desperately want health for my body, But am I willing to do what it takes? Am I willing to make the necessary sacrifices? As much as I desire health for my body, how much more do you think Jesus Christ desires health for His body? You and I, as Christians, are part of the body of Christ. And to speak of discipleship is to speak of maintaining the health of Christ's body. As we consider mission's emphasis, we turn our attention yet again to the Great Commission in which Jesus commands His disciples to make more disciples. The building up of Christ's body is one way to view the nature of missions and the nature of the mission. We often think of church planting in connection with missions, but church planting is only an early stage in the process We must be concerned with church development, church growth, and church health. This morning, we're going to consider a section of Ephesians chapter 4. In this passage, Paul famously mixes his metaphors as he refers to the construction, the building of the organic body of Christ. But before we dig into this passage, let's briefly sketch an overview of the first three chapters of Ephesians. Paul begins this letter with one of the most breathtaking run-on sentences ever written. Verses 3 to 14 of chapter 1 consist of a single 202 Greek word sentence, a praise of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and their distinct roles in the salvation of God's people. Paul then closes chapter 1 with a prayer for the Ephesian Christians, asking that God would allow them to know... Three grand truths. The hope they have in Christ, the value of the inheritance that awaits them, and the greatness of God's power, which not only raised Jesus from the dead, exalted Him above all other powers, and placed Him as head over the church, but also is working in their daily lives. Note the last two verses of chapter one as they have some specific connections to our passage this morning. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. Chapter 2 then reminds the Ephesian Christians of who they were and what God had done in Christ to rescue them, uniting Jewish and Gentile believers together into one body, the church. Look at verses 19 to 22. In Him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. This construction metaphor is what Paul will build on in chapter 4. But first, in chapter 3, Paul elaborates on his own ministry in a way that also prepares us for our passage this morning. He uses a phrase three times in chapter 3, referring to grace that was given to him. Look at verses 1 and 2. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Also see verses 7 and 8. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of His power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints... This grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. We'll see that precise phrase, grace was given, in chapter 4, verse 7. But he closes chapter 3 with another prayer for the Ephesian Christians, asking that God would enable them to comprehend and experience how broadly, extensively, highly, and deeply Christ loves them followed by a brief doxology, another praise of God. Now, as chapter 4 begins, Paul turns to exhorting the Ephesian Christians to live a certain way. Let's read verses 1 to 6 of chapter 4 to set up our passage for this morning. I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. His opening section of application focuses on a call for unity among the believers. Did you notice how many times the word one Showed up in verses 4 to 6, seven times. Add to that the mention of maintaining the unity of the Spirit in verse 3, and it's pretty clear what Paul wants to emphasize. What follows in the paragraph that we'll look at now describes how this unity gets fleshed out in diversity by different parts of the body working together through gracious ministry assignments. Take a look At verse seven. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul begins with that phrase we saw three times back in Ephesians three. Grace was given. And it appears a total of twelve times in all of Paul's letters in precisely this form, giving the impression that this might be a technical phrase for Paul. In seven of these twelve occurrences, he uses this phrase to refer to himself. And the three statements in Ephesians 3 help us see what this phrase is talking about. Look back at verses 1 and 2 and 7 7 and 8 of chapter 3. See how Paul explains what he's referring to with this phrase. In verses 1 and 2, he's describing his stewardship, a word that refers to the ministry God has entrusted to him. And in verses 7 and 8, he's speaking of how God made him a minister of the gospel, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. One commentator summarizes the point this way, God did not simply give him the gospel message of grace to take to the Gentiles, but the assignment to do this is itself, in a special sense, God's grace given to Paul. In fact, Kenneth Burding argues in his excellent book, What Are Spiritual Gifts?, that Paul uses this phrase with this consistent meaning, so that at every occurrence of this precise phrase, grace was given, or grace which was given, he always refers his readers to particular ministry assignments in the immediate context. So, in Ephesians 4, 7, I think grace was given to each one of us means God has graciously given every member of the body of Christ a particular ministry assignment. That truth has massive implications. It means you are not here by accident. God has specially placed you among the people of Alfred Allman Bible Church, and he's got special work for you to do for these people. God has given each one of you a ministry assignment. And only God knows how long that assignment will last. For some of you, your assignment may only last a day, a week, a month, six months, five years. And then God may move you or shift you to do something else or to go to a different place or give you a new gracious assignment. You might have multiple ministry assignments all at once. Don't think of them as particular official ministries, as in you're serving as the head of a committee or volunteering to help with VBS, though those would be included. Ministry assignments might include your personal encouragement of a discouraged sister in Christ. Ministry assignments might include your financial contribution to support a particular missionary. Basically, this language encompasses any good that God intends to do through you, For the benefit of the church. For some of you, your assignment will last until you die, as Paul's did. This is what happens oftentimes when missionaries are sent out to various places. However long it lasts, the rest of this passage is going to show us the nature of our assignments, and they all have to do with discipleship. But first, there in verse 7, notice also that this grace was given. To each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Don't think this means that God only gives a little bit of grace to some of us and a lot of grace to others. Ephesians 1, 7 and 8 refers to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Don't you love that word? Lavished? I do. Do you realize that God has lavished you with grace? He's not holding back when it comes to pouring out His grace in the life of His children. The measure of Christ's gift highlights the uniquely personal distribution of grace. It was when you received grace, it was because Christ gave it in a measure suited to His good purposes for you and for His body. The head knows what is good for the body. Now, before Paul actually gets into what this gifting and what this ministry is supposed to look like, he decides to explain his assertion that Christ gives gifts to his people by quoting a passage from the Old Testament, which points to Christ's ascension. Paul's use of this verse is hard to understand, but the main point is relatively clear. He quotes Psalm 68, 18. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In verses 9 and 10, Paul comments on one aspect of his quotation from Psalm 68, namely, the ascent. In the ESV, these verses are in parentheses, indicating that this is somewhat of a diversion from Paul's main point in the passage. He writes, In saying he he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. Paul's main point is clear. The one who went up is the same one who came down. After this comment on Jesus' ascension, Paul moves on into his main focus, describing the nature of the ascended Christ's gifts. Verse 11 says, "...and He gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers." We need to answer two questions from this verse. First, what has Christ given? Second, who is the recipient of these gifts? For the first question, pay close attention to the wording of the verse. What did He give? People. Simply put, Christ gave leaders. This passage is often brought into discussions of spiritual gifts, but notice that there is no mention in this passage of special abilities given to individual believers. Sometimes people speak of the gift of apostleship, or the gift of prophecy, or the gift of evangelism, or the gift of shepherding, or the gift of teaching. But these phrases are nowhere in the Bible. Well, I must say... There are a couple of those phrases that do appear in English Bibles in a couple of verses. But in each case, the translation is paraphrasing with interpretation, adding the words gift of in every case. Nevertheless, here in Ephesians 4.11, it's clear that these leaders are themselves the gifts Christ has given. There has been significant debate about how to define and how to count the specific leaders identified. I believe four kinds of people are mentioned, not five. I also believe Paul has grouped them in a certain way and sequenced them this way for a particular reason. I believe Paul intends the first two to be understood together, apostles and prophets, and the last two to be understood together, evangelists and pastoral teachers. If this is right, Paul is probably listing the first two as foundational leaders of the church, And the last two are listed as leaders that should continue to be present in every local church throughout history. The apostles and prophets continue to serve as Christ's gift to the church today and to all local churches in that they have provided the scriptures from which every local church benefits. This fits with how he characterized apostles and prophets in Ephesians 2.20, referring to the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Just seven verses later, in Ephesians 3.5, Paul refers to the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This suggests that the apostles and prophets are those who who were responsible for producing the New Testament writings. Thus, Christ gave the apostles and prophets as gifts to all churches. And the way we receive the benefits of this foundational gift is by enjoying the scriptures they produced for us. Next, Paul says, Christ gave evangelists. In our day, this is probably the most misunderstood term from Ephesians 4.11 because the English word evangelist means something that the Greek word does not. When we refer to an evangelist, we tend to think of someone like Billy Graham who traveled around speaking to thousands at tent meetings or revival meetings. In fact, it's the great revivalist movement of the second great awakening in the 1800s In America, that began the usage of the term evangelist in this specialized technical sense, stepping away from the biblical definition of the term. The Greek word simply means someone who communicates the gospel message to other people. Thus biblically, an evangelist is simply someone who proclaims the gospel to believers and also to non-believers. Evangelists in the New Testament were almost certainly not itinerant ministers who traveled around to different places preaching the gospel to non-believers only. Consider 2 Timothy 4-5. Paul commands Timothy, who, by the way, was serving in the church of Ephesus, "...as for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry." Paul is almost certainly telling Timothy to fulfill his evangelistic ministry to the church in Ephesus. As is clear from the context in 2 Timothy, the Ephesian church was threatened by false teaching, and Paul is charging Timothy to remind them of the gospel evermore, so that they will not be drawn away from it. Commentator Peter O'Brien writes, "...the admonition to Timothy to do the work of an evangelist is set within the context of a settled congregation." which presumably meant a ministry to believers and unbelievers alike. While the cognate verb rendered preach the gospel or evangelize covers a range of activities from what we might call primary evangelism and the planting of churches to the ongoing building of Christians and the establishment of settled congregations. This fits well with Ephesians 4.11. Christ has given evangelists to the church. I believe that every time I step behind this pulpit, I am doing the work of an evangelist. In fact, I see it as my primary task, my ministry assignment, if you will, to preach the gospel to the people of Alfred Allman Bible Church, as well as everybody else. One writer describes evangelism as the meat and potatoes of regular pastoral instruction and spiritual oversight. Now, Don't hear me suggesting that I or other pastors or any of you shouldn't be sharing the gospel with unbelievers. I'm simply pointing out that the meaning of the word evangelist and the meaning of the word evangelize in the Bible does not specifically describe telling the gospel to unbelievers. The audience of the action is not in view in the word itself. The gospel is for believers and unbelievers as well we should be talking about Jesus and talking about what Jesus has done to save sinners with everyone. The expected response to the gospel is slightly different. Unbelievers need to repent of their sin and trust in Jesus for the first time. Believers need to be strengthened in their faith and transformed to be more like Jesus. The Spirit of God uses the gospel of God to accomplish all of that. Thus, sometimes, Christians might separate evangelism and discipleship as though evangelism is what you do to unbelievers and discipleship is what you do to believers. However, the scriptures point in a different direction. The scriptures hold out evangelism as the overarching umbrella category and the work of discipleship is a subset of evangelism. They must not be separated. What about the fourth gift? Most English Bibles have shepherds and teachers, or pastors and teachers. And the word and could come across as indicating two separate gifts. But the Greek construction combines them into one type of person. Most likely, Paul intends the first word, shepherds or pastors, to serve as a subset of the second word, teachers. As one Greek grammar expert from Dallas Seminary puts it, Paul hereby implies that all pastors are to be teachers though not all teachers are to be pastors. Thus, Paul's point is to suggest that Christ has given pastors to the church, but he adds the word teachers in this construction to emphasize that it is particularly in their teaching that they serve as a gift to the church. This is not to denigrate teachers in the church who are not pastors. It is merely to acknowledge that Paul's focus here is on pastors, Pastors, which are shepherds, which are overseers, which are elders, exercise their authority in the local church through teaching, which is to say that we exercise an authority of counsel, to borrow a phrase from Jonathan Lehman. Paul's point here is to suggest that evangelists and pastors are Christ's gifts to churches so that they, unlike apostles and prophets, will continue to provide leadership to churches until Christ returns. And one final comment on this point before we move on. Just as Paul himself might have been considered both an apostle and a prophet, so also a particular individual man might be recognized as both evangelist and pastoral teacher. In other words, the function of both roles might be expressed by one person. This is what we see in Timothy with the church in Ephesus. Though Timothy was technically not an apostle, nor a prophet, nor an evangelist, nor a pastor, or elder, or pastoral teacher, he, in his unique role with the church in Ephesus, was commanded both to preach the word, reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching, and also to do the work of an evangelist in the space of four verses. So, to whom does Christ give these leaders? Who is the recipient of these gifts? I've already given away the answer. Paul does not say explicitly, but I think he clearly implies the recipient in the first phrase of verse 12, which says, to equip the saints. Thus Christ has given these leaders, who are saints, to the saints, to the church, to the body of Christ, so that every member is a minister. One writer notes, this is not really a spiritual gifts passage, except in the sense that the gifts are the apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastors, and the recipients of the gifts are not individuals in isolation, but the church collectively. Verse 12 begins by telling us why Christ has given these leaders to the church. Christ gave these leaders, verse 12, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. Paul is saying that Christ gave these leaders to the church for the equipping of the saints. And the rest of the passage focuses on how all believers do the work of ministry, building up the body of Christ. So why is Christ given leaders to the church? The word translated equip is very interesting. This is the only time it appears in the New Testament, but a related word appears frequently and with a few different meanings. For example, in Galatians 6.1, Paul writes, Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Paul's drawing this word from the medical world, where this word describes what you need to do when you've dislocated your shoulder or when you've broken a bone. I believe Paul has the same basic idea in mind here in Ephesians 4.12. This noun is used in a treatise written by the Greek doctor Hippocrates. ...of the famous Hippocratic Oath. I think doctors still commit to that these days. The uh, tract was entitled On Joints. Verses 13 to 16 here are going to begin looking at the church as the body of Christ... ...using several anatomical metaphors. So I think Paul is suggesting that Christ has given leaders to the church... set ...to set the members of the body in order... ...so that it can grow and function properly just like an ancient doctor would be expected to set broken bones so that they could heal properly. Christian leaders have as their primary task the maintenance of the health of the local body of believers they're part of. When leaders are attending to the health of the other members of the body, those members will be enabled to do the work of ministry that will produce the growth the body needs. The call to discipleship includes the call to ministry so that every member of the body does the work of ministry. This is also the work of missions, whether local or abroad. Paul further defines the work of ministry as building up the body of Christ. Here he reintroduces the construction metaphor he had mentioned back in Ephesians 2, 19-22, where we learn that the building Paul is discussing is the church, viewed as God's holy temple. He is about to build on this imagery as he highlights three overarching purposes for this construction project. First, he indicates that there is a threefold destination the construction is moving toward. Verse 13 says that the construction will continue until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What a mouthful. The Greek word translated until is important as it implies a high level of certainty that we all will reach the destination. Now, remember how verse 7 spoke of each one of us. Then Paul narrowed the focus to church leaders in verse 11. Now in verse 13, he's broadening out the focus again to all members of the body. When we think of spiritual growth, actually when we think of discipleship, We tend to think in terms of individual maturity. But in this passage, Paul emphasizes bodily growth, which will result in unity. The unity we should be striving for is twofold. First, he refers to the unity of the faith. That is, we should be moving toward agreement over the things we believe about Jesus Christ. Second, he speaks of the unity of the knowledge of the Son of God. Paul doesn't repeat the word unity, but it's certainly implied. Thus, we should be moving toward a common intimacy with Jesus. We should be sharing our lives together, telling each other what Jesus means to us and what Jesus has done for us lately. When I tell you something Jesus has done for me, you get to be part of that experience. You get to know Jesus better because you know what He's done for me. So... Let's be sharing more stories with each other. Because the truth is, if you're a Christian, Jesus is working in your life every single day, in every circumstance. These two kinds of unity are together the first destination of discipleship. But Paul mentions two more. Second, he is looking forward to all of us attaining to mature manhood. The body of Christ is to grow up. He'll specifically say that in verse 15. Here, he uses the imagery of a full-grown man to illustrate the maturity that the body of Christ should be pursuing. This will be contrasted to the immaturity of children or infants in verse 14. Thus, maturity is the second destination of discipleship. Third, he is looking forward to all of us attaining to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Not only is the body of Christ to mature in a general way, but it is to get taller... Uh, to match up to the height, uh, the size of Jesus, metaphorically. In other words, the destination of discipleship is for the church to look like Jesus. And that applies to the universal body of Christ and to each local church as well. So to sum up verse 13, Paul has characterized the first purpose of spiritual growth as unity, maturity, and Christ-likeness. Reaching this threefold destination is the first purpose of the construction project we call discipleship. The second purpose, stated negatively in verse 14, is so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. The construction of the body must take place so that each of the members won't remain immature like infants or undiscerning children who will believe anything you tell them. Discernment and an ability to cling to the truth of the gospel is characteristic of members of a healthy body of Christ. The third purpose serves as the climax of this paragraph found in verses 15 and 16. Instead of being children, the body of Christ should be built up so that, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ. The phrase, speaking the truth in love, is surely intended to explain how we are to grow up. One writer believes that in this verse, we encounter perhaps the most important ethical guideline in the New Testament, one that summarizes what Christian living is about, truth, love, and continual growth into Christ in everything. Well, if that's the case, we probably ought to spend some time trying to understand what Paul has to say here. The translation of this Greek word in almost every English Bible translation as speaking the truth in love, speaking the truth, is probably too narrow. Sometimes there's just not a good English word to bring over some of these rich Greek ideas. If we had an English word truthing, it would be better. That would get after the idea a little bit more clearly. The word includes telling the truth or speaking the truth, even speaking the truth of the gospel to other people. But it probably also includes the way we live our lives, conduct, the honest dealings, doing what you say you're going to do, representing yourself truly. It speaks of transparency, the transparency that should be a characteristic of every believer's life instead of hiding or suppressing the truth through cunning and deception. According to verse 14, lies and deceit are what throws off children and keeps them in their immaturity. Whereas verse 15 shows us that truth produces growth and maturity. This truthing, being truthful, practicing the truth, I think John uses that phrase, must be done in love. What does that mean? It means that being real with other people in the church should be an expression of love. Don't you see that it's the loving thing to do to let other Christians get to know you? To let other Christians know who you really are, what you're really struggling with, how life is really going? And if the body of Christ is working at all properly... It's very likely you will be loved in return. Paul says that the third purpose of this construction project is growing up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ. What does it mean to grow up into Christ? We've already seen how Christ-likeness is the goal we are moving toward, but why does Paul bring in the metaphor of Christians as the body and Christ as the head right here? What does it mean for a body to grow up into its head. The best illustration I can think of that expresses what I think Paul means comes from my own childhood. My grandparents tell me, and I remember a little of this, that when I was a child, I would often complain of regular neck pain. Apparently, my head was too large for my neck, and it caused pain periodically. But as I got older, I also got bigger, and my neck filled out a bit, and my body grew more proportionate. I stopped having neck pains when my neck developed stronger muscles so that it could support the weight of my head. I think Paul means something like this. The body must grow so that it fits with its head. Maybe you've played the matching game before where you have a head, a torso, and pants or something all dressed with different clothing, and you're supposed to mix them up and then fit the head with the right torso and the right legs. You can tell when you've got a mismatch, right? When the body doesn't quite fit with the head. I think that's true with the church as well. So the question is, when people out in the community, or even when people from other churches look at Alfred Allman Bible Church, when they think of the people who gather here together on Sunday mornings, do they see a group of people who love each other, who are honest with each other, in such a way that they could say, That body fits with Jesus as a head. Verse 16 fleshes out and fills out his metaphor, depicting the growth of a healthy body, but it is wordy. This whole paragraph is really wordy. He piles up phrases and clauses in such a way that we can lose sight of the main point. So, if you remove the modifying phrases for just a moment and focus in on Paul's subject and verb, as you can see on the next slide, The main point is twofold. The the main fold is here. The main point is expressed this way. From whom the whole body makes the body grow. So Paul's point is twofold. First, when he says from whom, he's speaking of the guide for the body's growth. Just as the head directs and guides the movement of the body, so Christ directs and guides the church so that it grows and becomes healthy. We saw in verse 15 that the body is growing into Christ, so that he is the goal. And here, Paul tells us that Christ is also the guide who will ensure that we reach that goal. Secondly, Paul indicates, perhaps surprisingly, that the body makes the body grow. So from verses 15 and 16, we learn that Christ is both the guide for and the goal of the body's growth, and the whole body causes itself to grow. It seems to reflect on a corporate level what Paul says about the individual Christian in Philippians two, twelve, and 13. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Paul calls believers to work hard, to exercise effort, to expend energy, but in the same breath, he reminds us that God is working in us as we exert ourselves, producing both the desire to obey God and also the successful obedience of pleasing Him. Well, let's take a brief look at those modifying phrases, and we'll see a picture of discipleship unfolding in organic community as he mixes the metaphor of the living and growing body of Christ with the metaphor of the construction of a temple building. How does he describe this body that you and I are part of? Look in the middle of verse 16. Joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped. Notice three things. First, see the emphasis on connectivity. Just as the human body does not consist of parts that may be removed and then put back in place so also the parts of the body of Christ are organically connected. As one writer memorably puts it, a dismembered body does not grow. The Christian life must be lived in community, even for individual growth to take place. We are joined and held together, Paul says. Commentator Harold Honer highlights the significance of this reality this way, Believers grow by being carefully fitted and held together rather than growing individually apart from one another. Thus, it is not self-initiative that causes the growth, but the gracious action of God who is responsible for the fitting and holding together of believers. You see, it is God who has truly connected the parts of the body together. And as another writer puts it, we cannot be mature Christians by ourselves. For we cannot give ourselves everything we need for a life of faith. Christ could supply our needs directly, but instead he has chosen to grace other people so that they contribute to us and we contribute to them. Grace comes from God, but it is also conveyed along horizontal channels. The second thing to notice is that every joint is mentioned The English word joint brings to mind the elbow or the knee, but the Greek word is much broader. It refers to points of contact or connections. It's related to the Greek word that means to touch. So, touching points. It's related to the Greek word that means to touch. By using this word, Paul is emphasizing the need for the parts of the body to connect with each other, to touch each other. By as Honor writes, the union and growth of the body can only come when there is contact with other members of the body. The immediately practical implication of this is that we need to be connecting with each other, both more often and more intimately. It is through contact between members that Christ maintains the health of his body. The third thing thing to notice is actually obscured in the ESV. The Greek word, the ESV translates, with which it is equipped, simply means supporting. As the NIV translates the phrase, joined and held together by every supporting ligament. In Galatians 3.5, Paul reminded the Galatian Christians that God had supplied, same word, supplied the Spirit to them as they trusted God's Word. And as it was used in Greek literature outside the Bible, this word indicates a lavishly generous provision of financial support so that a wealthy person would support a needy person or group, ensuring them that whatever need may arise, they've got it covered. Well, five times in Ephesians, Paul has already mentioned the wealth or the riches of God that He spends supporting us needy Christians. We won't take time now to look at them, but Jesus has been depicted as the immeasurably wealthy benefactor who supports us so that we achieve the goals He has set for us. Here, however, Paul's emphasis is on the connections in the body of Christ that support the growth of the body. When you and I have a need... How do we expect God to meet that need? And Scripture gives us ample reason to trust that God is going to meet our needs. I think Paul suggests here that often, if not always, God meets the needs of His people through His people. God uses one part of the body to meet the needs of the other parts. Now, the last phrase that Paul uses to characterize the body before he actually gets to the main verb of the sentence is radically paraphrased in the ESV. It says, when each part is working properly. And most English translations are similar. The King James Version is closer. It has, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part. But I have no idea what that means. (laughs) It's a very difficult Greek construction to make sense of. I translate the phrase, according to the measured energy of each single part. The phrase links up with the beginning of this passage, verse 7, using the word measure. But, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Paul is reiterating here at the end of the passage that every believer, every part of the body has a crucial role to play in maintaining the health of the whole body. Whereas in verse 7, grace was the focus, here, power is in view. Not only does Christ measure out leaders to the church, but he also measures out power or energy to each individual part of the body. As the ESV translates the phrase, when each part is working properly, the emphasis seems to come down on our functioning properly, to our doing it right. And that just puts more pressure on us when the point of the passage is exactly the opposite, to take the pressure off of every individual because we're working together and God's supplying grace. The two other places in Ephesians where the word power or energy is used, it refers to God's power working on behalf of believers, and that fits right here too. So now we return to Paul's main point. The whole body makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. As the parts of the body work together, the health of the body is maintained and the growth is promoted. The result is the completion of the construction project, the building of the temple of God. When we think of building someone up, we might simply think of encouragement or helping somebody in need. Though those ideas are probably included, Paul has something much grander in mind. Think of the image. We're talking about constructing the temple. He probably has in mind both the increase in size of the building as well as the beautification of the temple. Disciples of Jesus are to be making more disciples of Jesus. That's the mission. The multiplication of missions fits with the construction of the dwelling place for God. Finally, this construction project must be pursued in love, a phrase that has appeared three times in Ephesians 4 and three additional times in the rest of the letter. Love is, by definition, a reality that can only be experienced properly with other people. The church, Alfred Allman Bible Church, exists for a grand purpose, according to Ephesians 3.10, which says, "...through the church..." the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. One of my professors at Wheaton, Kevin Van Hooser, was fond of referring to the church as the theater of the gospel. And Paul probably has that kind of metaphor in mind here. As we live out truth, love, and growth in community, we are supposed to be improvising in our varied circumstances according to the script of the gospel. According to Van Hooser, the leaders Christ has given to the church are like theater directors who help the congregation become better actors by helping them learn the script and understand how it should be performed in the present cultural scene. And don't hear the word actors there as indicating that we're talking about pretending or faking it. It's not what he means. The audience of this grand drama includes the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. When we live out truth, love, and growth in community, we remind Satan of his doom. We remind Satan that we are on the victorious side of the spiritual war. When we isolate ourselves, reject intimacy, reject truth, and fail to love, Satan can look at our church as a reason for hope. Do we as a church family want to give Satan a reason to think he's gaining ground? Or wouldn't you like to cultivate a community here that whenever Satan and the other rulers and authorities look at our relationships together, reminds them of their utter defeat because of the death and resurrection of Jesus? Well, what have we learned? Here are five lessons from this passage. You can see them in your bulletin so you can take them home with you. Number one, every Christian is specially placed in the body of Christ. That means you. Every Christian is specially placed in the body of Christ right here, right now with these people for this season. And you've been, and every Christian has been given a unique ministry assignment that is vital for the health of the body or a series of ministry assignments. Number two, Jesus has given leaders to the church to provide guidance and opportunities for individual believers to do the work of ministry. Number three, discipleship means cultivating a healthy body that is growing toward greater unity, maturity, and Christlikeness. Number four, honesty, vulnerability, openness, and truthfulness are key factors in maintaining the health and growth of the body. And number five, Christ is both the guide for and the goal of the body's growth, even as the body brings about the growth of the body. We want to see these things lived out in this community, so I invite you to join me in praying that God would help us, because we need His help to do this. We need His help to prioritize our relationships with the people here, to spend time with each other, to touch each other, in ways that are life-giving and encouraging. And so let's pray and ask Him for wisdom and power to do those things. Father, thank You for giving us a layout of the mission. You've given us the calling orders, the marching orders very clearly in Scripture that we are to be about the business of making disciples. That's not just about bringing about conversions. That's about building a healthy body. That's about constructing a holy temple. And we need your help to do this. We need your help to love each other properly, to love each other enough to let people see us for real, to let us, let us open ourselves to do the risky thing, to love and to be loved, to know and to be known. Oh, Father, you've told us it's better this way. Would you help us to believe that and take the risk and help us to be willing to move into each other's lives in ways that are encouraging and supportive and helpful. Thank you for your love for us. Thank you for accomplishing the work of the cross in your son to satisfy your own judgment against us because we don't do this well. We fail and we will fail. And you have covered our failures in the blood of Jesus. So let us not wallow in guilt. Let us get up and keep moving forward. So thank you for your spirit who lives in each of us to empower us to do it, to put it into practice, to live it out. But ultimately, Jesus is the one who builds his church, and he's promised to do it. Death itself has no power to break or destroy or overcome this construction project. And so let us lean into it with confidence. Thank you for all the resources you give. Thank you for these people. Thank you for their place in my life, the friendships, the relationships that have built me up. As an individual, I pray that there would be multiplied impact of that in the days to come. It is for Jesus' sake that we ask you to do these things.